I am very intimidated by Pat and Tom and their enthusiasm. I mean, it's a little early, don't you think? They're like jacked up on Mountain Dew, man. They're ready to roll. Um, pleased to be with you again. And uh, stayed at a hotel last night that was having a wedding, so I had a good time. Um, I just was Uncle Phil. And <laughs> if he gets free stuff, that's okay, you know? I don't remember that Chinese guy, but he's in our family now. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis. In a minute, we're going to unpack some section of Genesis, uh, chapter 45. Um, let's pray and get started. God, thank you. Thank you for this ability to come together and be with the other believers. Those that are just, we're all striving to walk closer to you. And those that are seeking to learn more about you, help us for the next few minutes just kind of block out everything else that's going on in the world and concentrate on your word and be guided by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Landed last night, Dulles, got my rental car, got out right before there was a fire alarm and they were evacuating the airport. That was a good thing. I was right ahead. If everybody burned up behind me, I'm sorry. Um, but I'm getting on the highway and there's this motorcycle in front of me. And it's one of those, those little irritatingly high RPM sounds. And, and he's going really slow. Most of the time, they're always like going really fast. And he's really slow. But he's right in front of me. I can't go around him. I've got to get off pretty soon. And yet, he keeps turning around and looking at me. And I'm like, dude, go fast like you're supposed to. And eventually he did. He got irritated, and he went really, really fast, really, really loud. I don't know who he is. I hope he didn't wreck uh, anything bad like that. I did want to hit him. Um, I did want to hit him just gently. Um, why do you get so angry so easy? Why is road rage? I mean, why did, how can somebody get under your skin so quick? And my question is, before we had cars, when we were on horses and walking, did we yell at people? Did, we, did you have horse rage? You know, <laughs> you're in my way. Get your horse out of my way. I'm, or is that something that was created when we got in our little, little bubbles with wheels that we could go around? It's amazing how quickly somebody can irritate you. I'm walking in the airport. People don't walk, watch where they're going. If you're walking in the airport, it's like you're driving a little car. It's you. So let's keep going. Keep going. Get out of my way. I can't throat punch everybody. Uh, but, you know, to be honest... A stranger irritating me because they stop in the middle of the road or whatever it happens to be. That's little. It's your family. It's the people that are closest to you. It's the ones that you're living with. It's the people. And sometimes those can be little bitty scars. It's like a thousand paper cuts. It's little things that add up over a period of time and they, and they drive a wedge. Or sometimes it can be very serious. Robert Louis Stevenson had a short story, and he told about this, this couple, or not a couple, um, two sisters, elderly sisters that lived together, never married, and undoubtedly had meager circumstances because in the story they shared a room. So they just lived in this large room. And at some point, as my father-in-law would use the phrase, they had a fallen out. So they had a fallen out, got mad at each other, don't know what it was about. But for the rest of their lives, they had separated the room with a chalk line down through the middle, and each had to stay on each side of their chalk line. I'm like, we all have chalk lines. 
There's so many different ways that people get under our skin, and it's often our family. It's the ones closest to us. Now, like I said, sometimes they're little things, minor offenses that accumulate, and sometimes they're scars that are just open wounds. Maybe it's a parent that gets divorced early while we're young, and it just leaves a a lingering pain. Or it's a, a mate that had an affair and leaves. A sibling that cheats you out of money in some kind of a family business deal. Grandparents that are neglectful, grown children that never come around. Stepchildren, mixed marriage, and they get between the two mates. A parent that drank heavily and just kept everybody on edge after a certain time every day. It was just a rough home to be in. I read a statistic, and if it's true, it's, it's so sad. It was in L.A. Times, and it said one study that as much as one out of five American children will be abused. This is sad. So how, as believers, do you navigate the harm, and when do you forgive, and when don't you? Of all the hard things that you wrestle with, hard decisions that you, do, you make, it's when do you choose restoration versus retaliation? Now, every movie that I like is on the retaliation side. Have you noticed? Somebody's wronged, and eventually somebody has a comeuppance at the end. Something's going to happen, whether it's the Count of Monte Cristo or it's Unforgiven. And you should not have decorated your store with my friend. you got to go back and Google that with Clint Eastwood. But what about restoration? What about forgiveness? Now, we know what we're supposed to do. As Christians, Ephesians 4 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. We know that's the mandate. How realistic is it? How do we do it? And you kind of like it when you get the opportunity for revenge. Little boy gets in trouble. His mom makes him go to his room. After he's been in his room for a while, he calls him down for supper. And it's just one of those moms. Boy's already still mad. He's sitting there brooding. And she says, will you say grace for us? Little boy thinks for a minute, says, Lord, I thank you that you've prepared this table before me in the presence of mine enemies. (laughs) I like that kid. Hebrews chapter 12 says, make every effort to live in peace with all men. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So my, my goal is always, is you go back to the river is purest at its source. So go back to the word and try to unpack it. The scripture promises us that everything there, if we take it into our life, it does not come back void, that it will not be empty. And so whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, so go back to Genesis. In a minute, we're going to unpack chapter 45. But in Genesis, the beginning, one of the earliest stories is a story that you know. Even Hollywood knows the story. Donny Osmond ran around with the the coat of many colors, the technicolor coat. It's the story of Joseph. So Joseph, he's born into a family that is a mix and match and he's got 10 older brothers that don't like him they don't have the same mother they share the father the father dotes on joseph he's not only the youngest but he's his favorite and at one point you remember the story the dad 
thinks it's a great idea, I'm going to give him a really nice article of clothing, a coat of many colors. So in an era when most things were earth tones, he's going to be bright and he's going to have all these colors and we can see him coming from a long way off. And the brothers don't like him to begin with. This just makes it a little bit more irritating. Put on top of the father's mistake, Joseph didn't handle it so well because Joseph didn't have a lot of filter. So as a young teenager, he decided to tell his brothers, you know, I had this dream, and in this dream, I think you guys are going to bow down to me at some point. It's like, yeah, that's a good plan. They're older. They're going to beat you up. That's exactly what they do. So they see Joseph coming to visit them. They're out in the fields working. He's coming from a long way off. They can see him with that bright coat. And as he's coming, they just start grumbling about this kid and what are we going to do with him? So they come up with a plan. They concoct a plan. If you remember, when he gets there, they beat him up and they throw him into a dry well, presumably just to leave him there. But then they sit down to eat dinner because they're just so full of guilt. They decide to eat dinner. And while they're eating dinner, they start wondering what they're going to do with him. And they see some Ishmaelite traders that are coming along on their, their camels and they're bringing their stuff. And they got spice and herbs and different things. But they also trade in slaves. And so one of the brothers comes up with a plan and says, hey, you know what? What if we just sell him as a slave and tell dad he died and we won't have his death on our conscience? So that's what they do. So they sell him. So Joseph now Ishmaelite traders take him. They're on their way to Egypt. When they get into Egypt, they sell him. He's a bright kid. Potiphar, wealthy man, brings him into his home, starts off just as a slave working around the house, but he's sharp, and he starts working his way up, and he's more trusted, and he can take on more responsibility. And eventually, over a period of years, he's running Potiphar's household. He's like the house manager, Everything's going pretty good. I mean, he's, he's kind of bloom where you planted. It's like God's blessing in spite of. And while his brothers are off, and he doesn't know anything about them, they're on building their families and their lives, he's now still a slave, but at least it's comfortable, and he's in a nice home, and he's got responsibility and privilege until Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him, and she comes on to him. He rejects it. But you remember the story. She grabs hold of the cloak and says, he attacked me. Who's Potiphar going to believe, the slave kid or the wife? Doesn't do anything harsh to him, but puts him in prison. I think Potiphar's probably trying to figure out a way to not agree with the wife, but he's in prison. And once again, wondering, what, what did I do this time? Why am I here? But he does not turn his back on God. He keeps staying attached to God to the point where he has the ability to understand and interpret dreams. Now, he makes it very clear, I don't. It's God doing this. He's really interpreting the dreams. But there's these two other people that get thrown into jail or thrown into prison with him. These two work for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the leader of Egypt. He's got two people that are very close to him. You can imagine in that period of time in particular, one is the person responsible for all the food that he eats. He's the baker. And then the other is the cupbearer and what he would drink. Well, there was some kind of a, two, a coup attempt and maybe they tried to poison Pharaoh, but he didn't die. But he's trying to figure out exactly who's responsible. So he grabs both these guys, throws them in the prison, white, and figure it out. While they're in prison, they have dreams. They share the dreams with Joseph. Joseph listens to the dreams, and he interprets the dreams. He said, well, I got good news and bad news. Cupbearer dude, good news. Eventually, I see you back at the right hand of Pharaoh. 
Baker dude, not so good. I see you with birds eating the top of your head, meaning eventually they're going to kill you. Well, time goes by. Undoubtedly, Pharaoh figures out it was not the cupbearer because he's restored to his position. The baker's killed. Years go by again. He's still in prison. Cupbearer doesn't remember right away. It's not like he goes running to Pharaoh saying, hey, let me tell you about this guy interpreting my dream. No, it wasn't until it was convenient for him. When Pharaoh has a dream, Pharaoh has a dream and it's, it's, it's like a repeat, a version of the dream over and over and he can't quite understand it. And the cupbearer, maybe because he's feeling a little pressure from Pharaoh and it's getting tense in the house. And he says, hey, there was this guy I remember. He interpreted my dream when I was in prison and now I'm restored to your side. And so they bring Joseph out. Joseph listens, says, it's God thing, it's not me. And he says, what's the dream? And one of the dreams, he said, well, I see these, well, I got these coming out of the river. I got these seven uh, fat cows and seven skinny cows. And the, and the skinny cows seem to eat the fat cows, but they don't get any fatter. And Joseph interprets, and he says, well, it seems to me what God's revealing is that Egypt's going to have seven great plentiful years, but it's going to be followed by a famine. And if you are not smart and you don't prepare, then we're probably all doomed. Well, Pharaoh's impressed, and he says, well, not only am I going to get you out of prison, but I want you to be responsible for our program for that first seven years to make sure that we take care of ourselves for the, what's coming with the famine. And he gives him new clothes. He gives him a ring to wear. He is the second most powerful person in this adopted country where he came in as a slave. So for 20 years, this kid's been there. For 20 years, this, this, uh, this whole change has taken place. And this is the section, all that is backdrop to what we're going to read. Chapter 45. So the, this, the famine is not just Egypt, but it's surrounding, and it finally gets into Canaan, where he came from. And now his brothers have been sent by the dad to go to neighboring Egypt with some gold and buy some food for the family. They come to make the purchase. They do not recognize who's standing before them, and it's in Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of this entire household and the ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. So brothers show up after everything that we said, after everything that they did to him, everything that he's been through, slavery, then thrown in prison, still languishing. Now he's pulled out of prison. Now he's 
He's risen in prominence, but here are the people that did this to him all those years earlier. And just like, remember the dream he shouldn't have told? Probably should have kept to himself. He said, someday I think you guys are going to bow down to me. They're all bowed down to him. And he said, it's me. Now, first of all, they didn't recognize him. He's 20 years living as an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian, speaks like an Egyptian. If he had roller skates, he'd be, uh, that's Steve Martin. You're probably not old enough to remember that. That's a whole other deal. You got to Google it. Steve Martin walks like an Egyptian. They don't recognize him. He says, it's me. And then they're terrified. Whoa, whoa. Is this a trick? How's anybody know what we did to our brother? No, it's, it's me. And then he has a choice to make. Is it going to be revenge, restoration, or retaliation? Here's what I want you to see. Six points that we'll go through quickly on the whole idea of restoration and forgiveness. Number one, choose to forgive. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It is an act of will. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It's an act of will. I think we live with the idea of it's got to be something I feel. Well, do I feel like it? Do I, I don't know if I feel like I can forgive yet. It's not something, if you ever wait until you feel like it, you probably never will. You act on it. You make the decision, I choose to. Two reasons. Number one, God commands it. Jesus said, when you stand praying, if you have anything against your brother, forgive him so your heavenly Father may forgive you your sins. So it's a command. As a believer, you don't have any choice. We forgive. Father, forgive me. Remember this? The prayer, Father, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. It is a command. Number two, it is to our advantage. So we forgive, not because we're somehow, oh, we got to let everybody off the hook and they did something bad and we're not going to retaliate. No, it's because it's better for us. When you choose to hold and harbor to the resentment, it doesn't hurt them. It affects us. It's an acid that eats away at our peace of mind. It's to our advantage. Notice that Joseph, although he's godly, he's a good guy, he's also smart. He thinks, if I forgive them, maybe I get to see my father again. Maybe I get to see the rest of my family because eventually he's going to bring them. So there's a pro and a con. You ever have a really big decision? Maybe it's a job decision, a moving decision, something. And so you sit down with your, your legal pad in my life and you make a pro and a con and say, what are my pros on this decision? What are my cons? When it comes to revenge, when it comes to restoration or forgiveness, the pro side can be big. There's a lot of good things that can happen if I can choose to forgive. The con has one big stumbling block. It's my pride. I have to swallow that. Two, hold the guilty accountable. Yes, we forgive. Yes, we're commanded to forgive, but we hold the guilty accountable. We place blame where it belongs. You're tempted, and this has got to be careful, because when someone wrongs you, there is this one uniqueness about how we look at life as humans, is if you're not careful, you will hold yourself accountable instead of the person that wronged you you actually start blaming yourself. The guilt actually sets in. And then you start rationalizing. If I had been a better spouse, maybe I would not have been abused. If I had resisted more, maybe I would not have been abused. If I'd taken better care of myself, maybe my spouse would not have left. 
That is not what Joseph did. Joseph sees his brother bow down before him after all these years, and what's he say? I am Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. You did that. You made that mistake. You, you sinned. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes holding the guilty account, the person accountable means confronting them. It's easy to pretend everything's okay. <coughs> but when you confront, it enables you to release the anger. But here's a side note. Sometimes you don't. See, I think that you have to forgive. I think you have to release. I think you choose not to retaliate. But sometimes you do not, do not confront. The Bible talks about casting pearls before swine. You have to pray for wisdom and discernment. Here's what I want you to understand. You, by yourself, can forgive. You need two to reconcile. You have to confront in order to reconcile. But to forgive, if that's the way it works, you can. I read a story about somebody that's father was very abusive, and he wrote him a letter about the abuse and forgiving his father for all the things that he had done. But his father had been dead for years. He wrote the letter for himself. So you can re release and forgive. You confront when appropriate. Three, you release the right to retaliate. The brothers are guilty of a horrible crime, but he chooses to forgive. Forgiveness is not saying what you did is okay. Forgiveness is releasing the right to retaliate. I'm not going to hold it with me. I'm not going to carry it around with me. It's not going to be in my little backpack of revenge or frustration or harboring this, this ill will. The other day, I was flipping around and came up on this old movie. I love when a movie comes on that I haven't seen in years and I want to see when it was made. It's like, that's what, how you know you're old. It's like, dang, it's been 30 years since that movie came out. This is Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise, Rain Man. Remember Rain Man? It's got the older autistic brother, Dustin Hoffman. First of all, I got a question. How come it's been 35 years and Tom Cruise looks the same? What's the deal? Did they put him in a, a mayonnaise jar at night? You know, <coughs> I don't understand. Is that Scientology? Is that what it is? Somehow he's hermetically sealed because Dustin didn't get it. You know, he, 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 he's like 112 looking now. Uh, has nothing to do with the story. So anyway, when it came on, and I had forgotten the whole storyline. So Tom Cruise is the younger of the two brothers, but he doesn't even know about his older brother that exists until the dad dies. But if you back up, when Tom was a young man, he ticked off his dad because he borrowed his prized possession, which is like a 1948 uh, Buick Roadmaster convertible, and took it out when he wasn't supposed to, and they had a big falling out, and so he leaves home and never, ever comes back. Now we've advanced years later, and the dad dies. And in his will, he gives the older brother he didn't even know existed all $3 million of the estate. And to his son that made him mad, he gave him the car that he drove without permission and a rose bush. That's a dad that had a chalk line, man. That's a dad that could not let go. A dad, even at the very end, it's like, I want you to remember this one piece. Behind the college I went to, there was an old cemetery. And I know this sounds morbid, but reading tombstones was pretty interesting. Here's one. Tombstone. To my husband, John, may he rest in peace until we meet again. 
When we forgive, we release the offender from the past, releasing the right to retaliate. But it's not a one-time decision. It is a daily process. The challenge is not to forgive and forget. The challenge is to forgive and remember. Four, to forgive means we focus on God's providence. You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. I don't want to make light of anybody's circumstance. And we all have different circumstance and different opportunities when we come into this world. But there comes a point where you cannot live constantly looking backwards and wondering about all the wrongs, the things that were, were done to you or the opportunities that you did not receive that somebody else received. You can't live a life constantly full of wallowing and self-pity that says, I am a victim. If anybody could, he could. Joseph was a victim. He's beaten by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. Then he's falsely accused and thrown into prison. It's a period of years and years goes by, and his tormentors end up in front of him, bowed down. He was a victim, but he said, wait a minute. You meant this for evil, but God used it for good. Now, let's make sure it's not Hollywood Scripture, because Hollywood Scripture is always like, well, God did that. God made, did that on purpose. We have free will as individuals. It says God used this. God used this. Jan Frank was abused by a stepfather. Now, a counselor wrote a book called Door of Hope that thousands are helped through using a painful experience of the past that help others today. You got to be careful when you're trying to go forward and you're always looking in the back. When I was 16 years old, big rite of passage is we had this, and we weren't big camper families, but we had this camping trip once a year in May, and it was a father-son thing with a group of friends and, and their sons, and we were all going to go. It was in Oklahoma. It was a long trip. And I, because I was 16, I got to drive one of the vehicles. Big deal. Big deal. It was a, it was a Ford Econoline work van. Three speed on the tree. It was great. My dad was driving an RV packed with a bunch of stuff. I've got a bunch of junk in this vehicle. It's kind of a caravan of vehicles. And I'm following my dad. And this is pre-cell phone, so you've got to stay connected and make sure you know where you're going. And except for getting off to get gas, you know, you just drive. It's not like they're talking to you. But I was watching him. You know, he got the big mirror on the RV, and he was leaning, looking in the mirror. I can see his face, clear as day, and he's watching me through the mirror. But as he's watching me, he's kind of going like this. The next time we get gas, he accuses me of swerving. I'm like, no, 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 no. I was watching you. You're looking at me in the mirror, and while you're watching me, you're swerving. If you spend your life looking in the mirror, you're going to swerve. You're going to wreck. You're going to hit stuff. Five, restore trust as it is merited. Joseph doesn't just blurt out forgiveness. He doesn't just say everything, you know, everything's all right. Everything's forgiven. He tests him a little bit. He finds out he's got a younger brother, <coughs> excuse me, Benjamin. Benjamin is also loved by the father in a special way. And he wants to say, hey, wonder if the, old, the older brothers are mean to this kid too. He finds out that it's not that way, that they really work hard to protect Benjamin. He even sets him up a little bit to see if they're going to blame him for something that he didn't do. 
restoring trust as it is merited. We're not naive about forgiveness, and we don't immediately reinstate responsibility. And then last piece, express kindness to the offender. Joseph could have just said, I forgive you. Could have just said, hey, go back home. It's been great. Sorry that you did this to me, but look where I am. Look where you are. Tough luck for you. I'm great. God bless me. No, he chooses to go get dad. Bring back the rest of the family. I'm the second in command here into this country. We're going to have five more horrible years that are going to come, but I've got the ability to take care of all of you. We're going to have land, animals, crops. You come here. The question then is, do I really want to forgive? Read this from a lady that was abused as a child that years later she writes this. The Holy Spirit taught me that just as I felt ashamed, disappointed, embarrassed, confused, hateful, resentful, angry, disgusted about my aggressor's sin, so the Heavenly Father felt about my own sin. Yet He was willing to die on a cross to forgive me while I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. Surely I can die to myself, to my rights, in order to forgive another human being but this was only accomplished by prayer and faith and daily choosing to love in spite of. Sometimes we have to let go of the past in order to enjoy the present and dream about the future. Would you pray with me? Dear God, this is a tough one because it's almost like if I say, yes, I forgive, if I follow through and forgive, then I'm erasing the transition, transgression, like it didn't take place. I know that's not true, but it just seems emotionally what it feels like. Give us wisdom to see how you see us, that we miss the mark, that we disappoint you, and yet your grace is without limit. Your mercy is without limit. Help us take baby steps to decide to forgive. Emotions follow, but first the decision. Give us the courage to be able to do that. And if we could demonstrate that, is, that's going to be a loud clarion call to the rest of the world of a different way of life. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name, amen.